Hey everybody, this is Jimmy. Welcome back to the Jimmy Tingle Show. We are so excited today to welcome Jim Sullivan, writer for the Boston Globe, great arts editor, music critic, and also so helped the comedy community over the last 30 years. So it's a real pleasure and an honor to be able to speak to Jim and talk to you folks about his new book, Backstage and Beyond, 45 Years of Classic Rock Chats and Rants, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or TrouserPressBooks.com. Jim Sullivan spent 26 years writing for the Boston Globe and two decades more writing for national publications. He's interviewed and reviewed countless musicians, many of them multiple times. The first volume of his music writing anthology focused on artists who came to prominence in the 1950s and 1960s. 21 of them, that's right, 21 of them are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I just got to say, I love the intimate conversations with, with these Hall of Fame rock stars from backstage or after a show or before a show or over dinner or over the phone. Because unlike most rock critics or most critics, they don't get to know the people intimately. And Jim has maintained relations with a lot of these folks over the years. So you get a real window into rock and rollers and the lifestyle they lived and the challenges that they have. And it's a great read. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for doing it. And congratulations on the book. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the congratulations. Well, Jim, I want to know, how do you break the ice with Jerry Lee Lewis, Joan Baez, people you never met before, Neil Young? How do you break the ice with these folks? Well, it varies, obviously, depending upon who the person is. But I think the key thing is, well, for one, do your research, uh, know what you're talking about, who you're talking to, and where you want the conversation to go. And then, very importantly, try to figure out what their wavelength is and what works best in terms of the engagement. Uh, Humor often works. Pretty much everybody has a sense of humor or says they do. There's no particular <laughs> one thing that I've done, but I do find that I'm pretty comfortable with people at various levels of if you, of stardom, if you will. I'm not terribly intimidated by it. Thus, there's not a lot of hemming and hawing and, um, you know, kind of, you know, what uh, Chris Farley did on that Paul McCartney interview on Saturday Night Live, the, the thing about where he just goes, um, everything is so great. Um, here I, am, I can't believe I'm talking to you, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I mean, which if I talked to Paul McCartney, that could happen, actually. But, uh, no, I mean, I, I think part of it is just letting them know or hoping that they grasp that you're a professional, too. You know what their work's mm-hmm. about. It's not a fly-by-night thing. They're going to get questions that are going to be good probing. You, you know, some will be right on track for what they're trying to promote, of course, uh, concert, album, whatever it might be. Uh, and, but others will go further afield. Uh, yes, it did say with Bowie or um, Lou Reed or many of them, actually, or Jerry Lee Lewis, right. obviously. It's something I, I guess I've learned pretty, to do pretty well over the years. I'm fortunate that's one of the skill sets I guess I have. Well, it's really great because you really pull out of these folks a lot of the questions that they hadn't been asked before. Yeah, I can tell by some of their reactions and how they take a little time. Well, geez, no one ever asked me that before. So it's a real great attribute of the book. The other thing I love being a Bostonian is that you're talking about all these venues that all of us have been to many, many times. And folks, if you're listening from Boston and you are a fan of the Boston music scene, which I hope you are, or the national or international music scene, we're talking Tina Turner, David Bowie, uh, Roy Orbison, I mean, all these folks, then this book is just a, a real gem. 
But I love hearing about the paradise. I love hearing about the great woods and uh, the places that you that you interview these people, the channel. And I'm thinking of all the, every time I hear these clubs, I go, geez, I opened for Warren Zevon at the Paradise. <laughs> yeah, I opened for Patti LaBelle at Great Woods, you know, yeah. so I'm, it's bringing me back too. I, I just want to go back to what you, where you were starting about uh, questions that maybe they hadn't been asked before. Probably yeah. the best example in this book is chapter one with Jerry Lee Lewis, where I was riding in a limousine with him from an airport, uh, the Club Casino in New Hampshire, Hampton Beach, to the airport where his small plane was going to take off and go back down south. And it was right after Rolling Stone uh, had written a story, a few months after the story, that strongly suggested he had something to do with one of the death of one of his wives. And I knew that had to be part of the conversation and not something you tend to ask in interviews in my world anyway, certainly. Right. But it, it had to be there at some point. And I drove up with some friends and I said, when Jerry Lee said, I'll do the interview, but let's go to the airport in the limo. So, uh, okay, sure. So I told my friends, I said, follow that limo. And if that limo stops, <laughs> you stop, okay? Because I may be getting out, and I'm, I don't know in what shape I'll be getting out. But uh, we got there, and I you know, I said, so I got to bring up the Rolling Stone story. Jerry Lee, killer, his nickname. <laughs> Did you kill her? It probably wasn't that flip. <laughs> but uh, And he was in the frame of mind to take it as a serious question and one that needed to be addressed, and he understood it needed to be addressed. And he explained himself uh, about how he he said it could look that way. I understand how people see that it might have been that way. Uh, she happened to be found uh, in her bed with her hands like this in the, uh, the after-death position in a casket, by the way. Um, and he explained how she mistook the methadone that he had in his cabinet for aspirin and took too much of it. And, uh, and a few other things that it just, it didn't really add up. Now, do I know anything definitive one way or the other? I do not. He said he did not kill her or have anything to do with her death. Uh, I think the reader can read between the lines and maybe make up his or her own decision on that. And I'll just leave it there. Right. I think it was very wise to have the car following his yes. limo. Yes, I mean, if, if he can be accused of killing his wife, he could be accused of killing you. Yeah. There. <laughs> What's one more? I know. Um, well, how many wives did he have, Jim? I think there were six. Uh, if okay. I'm not mistaken, I think. I, actually, uh, Jimmy, this is just kind of funny asking about whether you killed somebody. I did it one other time. Uh, and I mentioned this, this is actually the intro to the book, Sonny Barger, The Hell's Angel, uh, yes. Altamont, responsible. Yep. He was doing a book tour. He had a memoir. We were having uh, dinner at uh, Paparazzi, I think it was. And uh, <laughs> I'd had, a, I guess, a couple of drinks, liquid courage, enough to say this. And yeah. so there were two things I asked. One, I said, if I were to go kick over your motorcycle outside, what would happen to me? And he said, he, he had voice, he had cancer, throat cancer. He said, you would get hurt. <laughs> I said, oh, oh, oh yeah, okay, that, that was good. And the second question was again, I, I almost can't believe I asked this. I said, so I, I read the book. You didn't in the book. You don't say you killed anybody. Did you kill anybody? And he just fixes me with this glare and says, "There's no statute of limitations on murder." <laughs> and that ended that question. Right, right. Well, Jim, tell me about 
where the where does Boston fit into the rock and roll scene? You know, the national level, the international level, because as we were talking, all these people came through town. That's how you met them all. And many of them, uh, they obviously played these small clubs initially. I think I told you off off camera that um, I know I told you that my wife used to work at the Rat. Yeah, my sure. wife, Catherine. Sure. And, you know, when she was working there, uh, the police came through. This is before they're famous. The police, U2, um, you know, many other bands that since became, you know, superstars. The same with the Harvard Square and the folk clubs yep. at uh, Club 47 with Dylan and Joan Baez and That's these true. folks. So, but how does Boston fit into the national or international scene? Well, I think one of the things uh, that was important is important to Boston, uh, especially considering uh, bands from England, say, is that Boston is often the first stop for them before they get to the big city of New York. Okay. And it's not a warm-up city or a tryout city by any means, but it is a city where it makes logical sense to play first. So we got a lot of these bands on the way up as they were basically cutting their teeth in America. And also, Boston had WBCN uh, doing what it did. Uh, it was a big rock station, no longer in existence. Uh, but they played a lot of these bands, and it got them exposure and uh, interest, built interest here in Boston. And BCN also had a national reputation. So other program directors would listen to what BCN was doing, pick up on the cues from that, and the fame or the potential for fame or success would spread out spread out from Boston to other cities. So I think Boston played a very pivotal role in that regard. And, uh, you know, it was pretty much, I mean, I, we had the rap, New York had CBGBs, uh, sort of right. companion clubs in a way. If, if a band played one, they played the other. And uh, the other thing about Boston, uh, as Spinal Tap uh didn't quite get right. It is a pretty big college town. And uh, therefore, you've got this built-in uh, audience, if you will, and this has been forever, of people who are young, are looking to have fun, uh, want to be out in the clubs. And some of them have enough disposable money to do that. And therefore, so this is sort of constant turnover in the clubs of young people coming to Boston, discovering a great scene, going out and uh, supporting the music. Right. And w tell us about wh who would you say is among the most influential that have the homegrown talent who weren't just coming from England or someplace else, but from here. I know you talked to Aerosmith yeah. and Joe Perry. Who would you say are among those folks? That well, are top nine? Yeah, in the in the first book, uh, yeah, Aerosmith, uh, Jay Giles uh, are in there. Um, in the second book coming out October 19th, uh, we've got the Pixies who came here from Northampton, but kind of broke out of Boston. Uh, we have Mission of Burma, very much uh, a Boston mm -hmm. band uh, that, that got national and international attention. Um, there, there's a chapter on Burma. Um, I would say, well, and, and duh, the, the Cars, <laughs> obviously. Right. Uh, the biggest band to break out of the, you know, if you will, the punk New Wave era uh, from right. Boston. And uh, there's a chapter in book two about them as well. So we, we have seen, I mean, I, I've been asked this question many times over the years to rate the Boston scene and to also say, well, it never had the hip cachet that you know, Minneapolis had at one point or Athens, Georgia had maybe even Cleveland or Akron at, at, at some points. Um, mm -hmm. 
but I have said and maintained throughout many years, it often was up at, you know, if you're going to grade it, it was often up at the A level, A minus level, and never went below like a B plus level. There were always mm -hmm. pretty great bands here. And you look back at some of the old flyers for advertisements at the channel or the rat, wherever, there'll be like four or five, maybe six nights a week where you go, God, I, I want to be there. Or maybe you were there, or maybe I was there. Um, there was just so much available all the time. You really had to make choices about, can I go out tonight? Do I have it within me <laughs> to do another night out? Yeah, I'm sure you remember Night Stage. I do. Yeah, I actually opened up for um, uh, uh, I'm gonna say Gil Scott Heron. Gil Scott oh, Heron. Wow. There. Yeah, and that was pretty wild. That was a lot of fun. And uh, that was the first time I ever did an hour was opening up for Gil Scott Heron because he was late. I'm, so I'm supposed to do 15 minutes. Oh and the God. owner, the owner comes up to me. I'm on stage. You know, this is like, I don't know, 83, 84 or something. The owner comes up on stage and he goes, Jimmy, Jimmy, stretch, stretch. Keep going. <laughs> oh, God. I guess he missed the boat. He missed the boat from missed the ferry from the vineyard him and the band, and you know how that is. And they were coming from the Hot Tin Roof, which is another venue you talk about. Yeah. And I think that's where you um, met Jerry Lee Lewis, is that, that right? That was the last time I saw Jerry Lee. Yeah, that, okay. was, that was the final sort of goodbye, if you will, from uh, our relationship. Um, I, I was just gonna say about Gil Scott Heron, there was also a, a drug problem that may have uh, impacted his ability to show up on time too. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the tragic uh, through lines of some of these folks, not all, but some of them. Certainly, uh, Warren Zevon, you elaborate on that a lot in that chapter. And in your book, you talk about all these behind-the-scene experiences that uh, people have and the musicians have and that they're, what their life is like, what they're trying to do. Like uh, Tina Turner, I love that interview with Tina Turner, talking about how she was not really doing what she wanted to do. She really wasn't anywhere. She had been doing gigs just for the money to pay the bills. This is after splitting up with Ike. Then she met a manager and how one manager could yeah. completely turn her life around. Yeah. Wouldn't I just tell everybody about that? Yeah, uh, it was, that was a great talk. It was arranged by the record company. It was a dinner with some record company people and I was the, the journalist invited to sit next to her and, and talk about her, her life and career. And, you know, she was very candid in not just promoting a new record or a tour, but kind of musing about whether she wanted to continue doing what she did. Uh, she wanted to act, actually. She wanted to, yeah. she's one of the most charismatic, sexiest singers ever. And she wanted to step away from it. She'd done it a long time, and it was time yeah. to maybe try to do something else. So that was part of the conversation, um, you know, as well as, well, what was not part of the conversation was her time with Ike. And that was me respecting her in the sense that the story had been told, the book had been written. I didn't want to spend time during, you know, a limited amount of interview time dragging Ike into it and forcing her to either dismiss him or say, yeah, he did some good things or whatever it was she was going to mm -hmm. have to say. So we kind of kept Ike out of it, which I think was a, a good call. Well, she was great. And what I loved about that was a lot of this is luck. A lot of who makes it in music is, is so competitive and there's so many people. A lot of it is do you, do you hook up with the right people early on? Do you meet the right manager? Do you have an agent that believes in you? Do you have a record company that's behind you? And what I, I've just found so 
amazing about that story and, and uplifting really was she found a manager who just loved her, loved her, understood the business, took her, took her under his wing. He's from Australia, I believe. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that made all the difference. And then he just did the business. She did the songs and he made her a superstar. And, and keep, keep in mind, she was considered old at that time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was sort of, a, you know, record companies didn't really want her. Uh, she'd had her, right. she had her moment in the sun. Okay. Thanks. Goodbye. And right. so it took a lot to get her to where she went again. Right. And she went bigger than just about anybody, she, she but you said she was considered old. I think she was 42 at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you're in your forties, I mean, come on, we're not athletes here. You can, you can do music. I mean, the stones are touring at 80, that's right? right? <laughs> so, so that is one thing that's changed and probably because people, you know, the whole country, their audience is also 80, right. you know, right. right. And so the, the, everybody's evolved, but they didn't see that when, um, back in the day, yeah. but that was just a very revealing, a very revealing, uh, part of the book that I loved. Well, you're a great writer and even for a great writer, how long did it take? About four months, four months to do volume one. And two, both actually. I just got wow. on a roll. Uh, it, yeah, I was doing a, a chapter a day for a while there, and wow, yeah, it just—it uh, was an interesting zone. I mean, you must find that too with comedy sometimes. Just when you hit that sort of like when you're writing, it's like I'm on a roll now. I'm not going to stop. And right. to be honest, I mean, I wrote more than Ira wanted uh, initially um, <laughs> because. <laughs> And that's why we decided to put it into two books because he said, right. you don't want it. This is going to be a doorstop. We don't want a doorstop. Let's break it right. up. So we did. And, uh, but the thing was, I kept turning in chapters and he would edit them and send them back and say, this is great stuff. Just yeah. keep going. And I right. just kept going until I think finally he said, you know, I think we got enough here. And I went, oh, okay, right. fine. <laughs> so right. I've got more stories, you know, but, right. uh, you know, volume three, right? <laughs> yeah, well, this is Volume 1, Backstage and Beyond, Volume 1. It's an awesome book. And I just want to read you who's in this book just so you can get it. And, Jim, if anything pops into your head while I read these names, give me 10 seconds on anybody who pops into your head. All right. Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, a wild man, a, very, a man of many contradictions, uh, a man who I drank whiskey with and a man who offered uh, – the opportunity for me to write his auto uh, co-write his autobiography with him when we were drunk one night at the bottom line and then sobered <laughs> up and said, no, both of us. I think I know I certainly did. Yeah. David Bowie. Um, tremendous interview and uh, loquacious, warm uh, and very willing to go wherever I wanted to go with questions and answers. I mean, he was, uh, and very happy to take negative criticism about himself and very eager to discuss his uh, odd work habits of it is the, the fact that he was somewhat of a chameleon in his uh, musical approach to style. Right. Lou Reed. Um, I got on real well with Lou. Not every writer did. Most, in fact, didn't. And I really can't tell you exactly why. I interviewed him probably a half dozen times over the years. And again, it's getting on that same wavelength thing, I guess. I knew the music. He knew that I knew the music. And I, my sense of humor is a bit acerbic. His certainly is. And, uh, you know, I got his jokes. I think, you know, as, as a comic, I think you 
people yeah. <laughs> bond on that level. <laughs> do they get your jokes? If they do and you get theirs, there's a connection there. And I think, right. uh, you know, Lou and I had that. And uh, I guess the other thing I, I wanted to say, uh, Lou, I believe, was bipolar. And, and I asked him about how he got out of that when he could. And he said, he, this is great advice. He said, I try to look at it as a clock. And he says, I know the hand is going to be down at six. I'm going to be really low. But I also know it's going to eventually come back up to 12 again. Very simple. Nice. But something, you know, that worked. Right, right. Peter Gabriel. Um, I was fortunate enough to talk with him at the very beginning of his solo career, which was a great time because he was reinventing himself. He was stripping down the ornate music he'd done with Genesis and kind of putting them into three and four minute songs and making them less complex and less convoluted. And, and he wasn't doing so much with the costuming. So he, he was very much inspired by the punk rock of the day and the DIY culture. And uh, it, it was it was great to talk to somebody who was so enthusiastic about that, about the change that was going on in their career. And taking a leap from the stardom, superstardom of Genesis, you know, back down again and then building it back up. We're trying to, right. which he did. And, and that's how the whole book is. It's all these insights and just conversations that some of it was a lot of what you wrote about in the book was off the record at the time. You were just conversations that weren't necessarily uh, always, they didn't appear in articles. So you get a lot of this insight about what, what makes people tick. I love what, talking about Neil Young and King Harvest and, uh, excuse me, Crazy Horse and his band and Crosby, Stills, Nash and just all of this stuff. Warren Zoo. Tell me about Leonard Cohen. What was that like talking to Leonard? Oh, he was great. I, I, um, as you might imagine, Lenny's a, a pretty smart guy. And uh, one of the exchanges that I liked most was he had written a song called The Future that was pretty dark and grim and harsh. And I, I uh, asked him, I said, you know, do, do you have any regrets about a, making a song, you know, that like that? I mean, it's so extreme. And he just tells, he says, I wish I could have made it darker. <laughs> or that was his regret. It should have been darker than it was. So, right. Um, he, he was terrific. I mean, I, I miss him very much. And uh, what I love about Leonard Cohen's career in a way was that he had his, his, his heyday, if you will, in the 60s. And then people kind of forgot about him, I think. And then when the post-punk generation came in, people like Dick Cave and PJ Harvey and others, they kind of rediscovered him and brought him to an audience that maybe didn't know about him or didn't know much about him. And that new audience realized that, oh, he's one of us. You know, he's an older guy, but he's one of yeah. us. And, you know. and then, of course, Hallelujah hit with Jeff Buckley. And then it was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's just great. It's just great to hear that people can reemerge. Yeah. Uh, with the times. And Neil Young talks about that. He says, you got to change or you're dead or no one's going to pay any attention to you, but that you can persevere. And uh, the same attributes that go into writing songs in the 60s is the same formula and emotions that are driving you to write in the 2000s. You know, and that goes for comedy or acting or writing or, or, or anything. Well, as I'm one sure thing you. I liked about Neil, too, was he was so adamant about what he was doing at the time. And one of the early interviews I did with him was when he was playing country music with the International Harvesters. He played yes. Foxborough um, there with Willie, Willie Nelson and some others. And uh, he was just saying, you know, I'll, my, my best Neil is, uh, 
You know, I've played so many screaming loud rock and roll guitar solos. I've had it. How many more of those can you do? Country music <laughs> is where I'm at. I'm like an old dog circling the rug, and I think I finally found my spot. <laughs> okay. Let's move ahead, move ahead about three or four years. What's he doing? He's playing kick-ass loud rock and roll with Crazy Horse. <laughs> Hilarious. Jim, you know what I also was interested in about talking to Tina Turner? She wanted to act, but she said there were no roles, for, very few roles for women and hardly any roles for black women. So one of the thing, most of the folks that you talk here uh, are men because that was the those were the rock and rollers at the time. But you talked to quite a few women. And just give me a little insight in, for example, Marion uh, Faithful and... Uh, and uh, Joan Baez and Katie Lane, did they uh, address that, that the challenge it was for women in rock and roll? No, not particularly. And I, I tended not to ask that question of uh, what's it like mm -hmm. to be a woman in rock and roll. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of sounded a little patronizing to ask that. And I, I mean, clearly they were <laughs> women in rock and roll but by the time i talked to them they had carved out their territory and you know right. had a fairly substantial level of success um marianne fought it probably for harder than maybe the others did fought for it and went through some horrible times again drugs and booze and recovery part of what, which was done here and outside of boston um but you know she became again, a, a slightly older person who fit into that whole punk new way of milieu uh, and was rediscovered by people, people, the punks, if you will. Um, and, you know, the other, uh, Joan, uh, I talked to her uh, a few years ago and, um, you know, it, it was funny. I, I said, Joan, you may not remember this, but we met once at Newport Folk Festival and you were, uh, she's out, was, was, I was, what was I, Queen Joan? Was I a bitch? I said, yeah, you, you weren't, you were kind of not so good. She said, okay, that, yeah, that makes sense. And then we, we had this wonderful interview and, uh, you know, she was talking about her you know, being able to do the Dylan songs that he no longer does because they're great songs and she wants to bring life to them. And whatever their history might be, she's grateful to have had that history and to keep his songs, those songs, uh, in her canon, if you will. So... Great stuff. And, and the Katie Lang uh, story, too, uh, one of the touching things there was about what she said about Roy Orbison. Uh, mm. Roy is the closing chapter in my book, and uh, uh, she and Roy did a duet on crying, which is just so beautiful. And uh, she was talking about, you know, how people think Roy was, you know, the, the person in his songs was so lonely and alone and sad. And that may have been a part of him, and I think it was, and certainly a part of him when he was writing songs. But he was anything but that outside of that particular uh, place. And um, she wanted to stress his warmth and humor, and I thought that was kind of a nice thing to to get into the into as well. And uh, Roy, of course, uh, left us, and I had the fortune, miss not misfortune coincidence of doing the last ever interview with Roy. Mm. And, uh, did his warmth and humor and did that come across in that very interview? Very much so. Yeah. Um, he, he had been born again. Uh, not my cup of tea, by really? any means, but I can ride with it. And uh, he was feeling the sense of, once again, this idea that people were rediscovering him. Uh, you know, the traveling Wilburys boosted his, uh, 
visibility, I guess, uh, the praise from all these other rock people. And he was just on the verge of releasing his solo album and uh, with Mystery Girl and You Got, you got It. And uh, I talked to him right before that album came out. I had listened to it. I had an advanced tape. It was a great record. And I said, you're playing Boston a couple of dates at the channel. Are you going to do any of these songs? And he said, oh, no, Jim, I, I can't do that yet because that would be unfair to my audience. They don't know those songs yet. They want to hear the songs that they know. I mm. said, oh, yeah, okay, I understand that. It's too bad. I'd like to hear one or two, but I get it. And I said, but next time around? He said, oh, yeah, next time around. Well, there was, of course, no next time around. And, um, you know, it was uh, a, a real shock to me, to everybody, uh, that he died so young. And uh, I miss him. I mean, I had uh, seen him several times and had the good fortune to, you know, exchange hugs <laughs> with him. In a, yeah. And actually in a period when men didn't do that quite so much, but it was very right. easy to do. <laughs> Well, Jim, when I see you, I'm going to give you a big hug. The book is wonderful. And just leave people, tell us about some of the surprises or what we might find in volume two, because this is only the first volume and it's easy reading. That's what I love about it. The letters are big. The book is big. The type is big. And it's easy to read. And it's very conversational. What will we see in volume two? Well, the same tone, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it keys on uh, The Clash, The Sex Pistols. Billy, wow. Bragg, Billy Bragg, Ramones, The Damned, The Buzzcocks, uh, Patti Smith. Wow. Uh, it, it's, you know, the punk, post-punk, new wave era primarily. I like both books. I think they, they and I think hopefully there's an, an overlap between the two. Uh, some of the people in the first book, like Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, Roxy Music, certainly influence people that show up in the second book. Well, great, Jim. Thank you so much. Congratulations on both books. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. And you can get Jim Sullivan's new book, Backstage and Beyond, Volumes 1 and 2, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or TrouserPressBooks.com.